If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll look at the whole chapter this morning. The sermon is entitled, The Folly of Idols. Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's living and active Word. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman, They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen, and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses." Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. And I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. 
My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds of Israel, or pardon me, for the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, Behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have just heard from the prophet As we have just heard from you, the way of man is not in himself. It is not for man who walks to direct his steps. And so, Father, we pray that you might grant to us hearts that are receptive to your word, that we might might receive your direction, that we might learn from you the way in which we should go. We thank you, our Father, for the gift of Holy Scripture. We thank you for the way that you use this ordinary means as an effectual means for the salvation of your elect. And we pray that the Spirit would indeed work through the preaching of your word this morning, that we might be brought before you, that we might, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have sweetness of fellowship with you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, thus far in the prophecy of Jeremiah, we've moved from the prophet's call, you remember, in chapter 1 to the Lord's identification of Judah's problem in chapter 2, which was her lack of love to God through her idolatry, to his proposed solution to that problem in chapter 3, which of course was the grace of repentance, to a foretelling of where all of this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, which is the execution of his judgment against Judah by way of the Babylonians, to his exposing Judah's habit of presuming upon his grace through hypocritical worship in the great temple sermon, which began in chapter 7. Last time, in chapters 8 through 9, we saw him focused upon the folly of an uncircumcised heart, particularly among Judah's spiritual leaders, that is, the prophets, the scribes, the priests, the kings, and the officials. And this morning, in chapter 10, we see him focused upon the folly of idols. So whereas in chapters 8 and 9, the Lord focuses upon folly from within via an uncircumcised, or we might say unregenerate, heart, In chapter 10, he focuses upon folly from without via false gods or idols. 
And so we'll divide our text for this morning into three sections. The first, verses 1 through 10, where we see the emptiness of idols, the emptiness of idols. The second, verses 11 through 16, where we see the transitoriness of idols, the transitoriness of idols. And then the third, verses 17 through 25, where we see the condemnation of idolaters, the condemnation of idolaters. Let's look there at that first section, verses 1 through 10, where we see the emptiness of idols. Look again at verses 1 through 3a, so just the first part of verse 3. The text says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. The Lord begins this part of his message with two warnings. Two warnings. First, he warns Judah against learning the way of the nations. And then second, he warns her against being dismayed at the signs of the heavens. And the second warning explains the meaning of the first. Within the false religions of the Gentile nations, they looked for signs in the heavens. For them, the movements and phases of the sun, the moon, and the stars were believed to have special spiritual significance. The Lord referred to this back in chapter 8 and verse 2 when he said that the bones of the kings, officials, priests, and prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem would eventually be exhumed and spread out on the ground before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And what happens to those bones? They just sit there and continue to rot because the sun, the moon, and all the host of heaven in all their glory and their power can't raise the dead. Only the one true and living God can raise the dead. And so what the Lord means by the way of the nations and the customs of the peoples in his first warning there is their false worship, their idolatry, Such idolatry may have the appearance of wisdom and power, but it's ultimately hollow. Or as the Lord says in verse 3, it is vanity. It is vanity. Now that word that's translated there in the ESV, vanity, that's the same Hebrew word the preacher uses in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says at the very beginning of his sermon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he goes on to explain what he means. And as we read the book of Ecclesiastes with the eyes of the Spirit, we see that he intends to inoculate the tender soul, the soul that's been made tender to the Lord by the Spirit against the temptation to trust in one's own wisdom and power, particularly when it comes to one's common labor in the world. The word literally means, that word vanity literally means vapor, a vapor or a mist. It's like when you exhale in the cold night air. You've all had that experience. You see that puff of vapor, but it's only there for a moment and then it's gone. 
It has no lasting effect. It's empty. It's void. It's hollow. It's just for a moment. It's transitory. And this is the nature of idols. This is the nature of idols and all their worship, beloved. They appear to be full. They appear to be lasting. They appear to be wise and powerful, but they're ultimately empty and void. They are hollow. They are vacuous. They are like a a puff of breath that's here for a moment and then gone. And this is why the Lord graciously now warns His people against giving themselves over to them. He wants the best for His people, and that best is Him. It's Him. Look at verses 3b, so the rest of verse 3 through verse 5. We go back to the text. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. The Lord now graciously exposes the idols for what they really are. They are sinful creatures created by sinful creatures. And sinful creatures might be duped by the luster of their silver and gold, but the Lord sees through it all. He knows that they are but impotent images fashioned by the hands of skillful men. First, he describes the way that such idols come into being. How do such idols come into being? They are produced from the raw materials of this world by human hands. It is a law that that which is produced is inferior to the one who produces it. And that inferiority is evidenced in the way such idols must be fastened to something by the same human hands that created them, lest they topple over. The Lord then offers a sobering comparison. Though much time, much energy, much skill, and much wealth may go into the production of an idol, it's really nothing more than a hastily made scarecrow sitting in a cucumber field. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have legs, but they cannot walk. In other words, they are foolish. They are foolish, and they are powerless. They are utterly empty. And therefore, the Lord graciously offers His people another warning against them, saying, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. And why? He tells them why. Because they can neither harm them with evil, nor bless them with good. Those who worship false gods may have their stick, the fear that they will be harmed by that false god. They may have their carrot, the hope that this false god will bless them, but the stick and the carrot are just an an illusion of the imagination. It is the Lord. It is the Lord we must fear. It is the Lord we must fear. He is the one 
He is the one who holds all sinners to account. He is the one who is the source of every blessing in life. Verses 6 through 10, we continue in the text. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Now, as we saw in the previous two chapters. So again now, Jeremiah breaks into the flow of his prophecy to bear his own soul in prayer before the Lord. As we noted last time, as in the book of the Psalms, such prayers, such moments where the prophets bear their souls before the Lord continue to be the inspired word of the Lord. Those prophecies, those prayers they utter, they are the inspired Word of God. But in those cases, rather than God giving them a command to obey, He is giving them an example to follow. In other words, the Lord now speaks indirectly through the heart affections of His prophet, whereas in the previous two chapters, the Lord used Jeremiah's experience his heart affection as an example of godly grief that leads to repentance in order to cure his people of the sin of hypocrisy. In this case, he uses Jeremiah's experience as an example of what pure worship would actually look like in order to cure them of their idolatry. And notice, notice the way such pure worship In the heart begins, beloved. Pure worship always begins with a focus on the singular greatness, the singular excellence, the singular beauty and wisdom and power of the one true and living God, the Lord. He is the only true and living God. Every other God is false and dead. There is none like Him. He is great, and His name, that is His special revelation of Himself to us, is great in might. Jeremiah then asks a rhetorical question, who would not fear you, O King of the nations? And the assumed answer, of course, is no one. No one ought not fear, respect, honor, reverence, and worship the Lord. And notice Notice how Jeremiah calls the Lord king of the nations, king of the nations. You remember when God called Jeremiah back in chapter 1, he said he was going to make him a prophet, not just to my people Israel, my people Judah, but to the nations, right? A prophet to the nations, king of the nations. The God of Israel is the God of the nations, whether they receive him or not. Their worship to Him is His due by sovereign right, His due by nature. 
There may be many wise ones, many kings in the earth, many kings with their kingdoms, but none comes close to comparing to the Lord our God. He is the king of kings. The kings of the nations, Jeremiah says, are stupid and foolish. And why? Because they listen to the instruction of idols of wood, which are mere dolls, dressed up in pretty clothes and decorated with shiny ornaments. One would almost think Jeremiah was describing Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox worship. This is the foolishness of corrupt worship, beloved. It amounts to the worship of the creature. The idols are false. The Lord alone is the true God. The idols are dead. The Lord alone is the living God. The kings who worship idols come and go. The Lord alone is the everlasting king. He will one day shake the whole earth by his wrath, and all such idolaters will fall under his just judgment. And that brings us to verses 11 through 16, where we see the transitoriness of idols. So we move from the emptiness of idols to the transitoriness of idols. Look at verse 11. The text says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heaven. Heavens. The Lord now speaks directly through His prophet once again, having focused in the first section on the emptiness of idols he, by way of their lack of wisdom and power. He now graciously reveals to His people their transitoriness. These are the defining characteristics of vanity, beloved. Vanity is emptiness and transitoriness. Vanity is hollow and momentary. The idols are, quote, gods who did not make the heavens and the earth. In other words, they are not gods, but they are mere creatures. And as such, they have no lasting being in and of themselves, but will one day perish from the earth and from under the heavens. A day will come when they will be no more. Look at verses 12 through 16. The prophet continues, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols." For his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Once again, Jeremiah bears his soul before the Lord as an example of pure worship. And once again, he focuses upon the singular greatness of the Lord God. The idols who did not make the heavens and the earth are nothing. They are nothing compared to the one who made it by his sovereign power, established 
the world by his sovereign wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his sovereign understanding. The idols who cannot speak are nothing compared to the one who utters his voice and brings forth storms from the sky, mists from the ground, lightning from the clouds, and wind from his storehouses. Because the Lord is, because he simply is, every idolater is ultimately without knowledge and put to shame by the very idol in which he boasts. And why? Why does the boast of the idolater become his shame? Well, because his images are false and dead. They have no breath in them. They're worthless delusions. Their greatness is but a figment of foolish imaginations. And a day will come when all those who worship them will be finally punished. And on that day, both idol and idolater will perish together. The same cannot be said for the portion of Jacob. The portion of Jacob by which Isaiah signifies the Lord. The Lord is the portion of Jacob. We find that idea of the Lord being the portion of His people throughout Holy Scripture. But Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 16 and then later in chapter 51 and verse 19 are the only places in Holy Scripture where we find this particular name. The Lord is the portion of Jacob. To call God the portion of Jacob is to emphasize His great worth. This is what Jesus meant when he described the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13 through the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. It's what he meant when he warned the crowd in Matthew 6 against laying up for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, exhorting them instead to lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. To have covenant fellowship with the Lord such that He is your God and you are His person. You are His people. Is to belong to Him. That is to have everything even if one has nothing in this world. And to have everything in this world without Him is to have nothing ultimately. And you know where that's proven absolutely true? On your deathbed. On your deathbed. This is what Jesus means in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I had a conversation with a young man about last night about that parable. He had asked about the horror of hell. And I was like, well, one place where we see it very clearly from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In that parable, the rich man has everything. It's as if he owns the whole world. But ultimately, he has nothing when he dies and finds himself in hell. Lazarus has nothing, on the other hand. He is destitute. He is an outcast. His only companions are the dogs who come and lick his sores as he begs at the rich man's gate. But though Lazarus has nothing in this life, in this world, 
He ultimately has everything. Because when he dies, he is escorted by the angels of God to the side of Abraham, which is a Jewish way of saying heaven itself. It's wonderful we have so many young people in the, in the church, in the congregation, here on Sunday, so many, so many that are at that stage in life where they're kind of looking to the future. Everything's kind of in front of you. Isn't that wonderful? Be warned, be careful, be careful. It's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking life's just about earthly wealth, temporal wealth, temporal blessings. Temporal blessings are a good thing. There's nothing evil about having temporal blessings. But if we begin to covet those things and don't worship the giver of the gift rather than the gift itself, then we're giving ourselves over to idolatry. There's a close connection between the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and the last commandment, the tenth. You shall not covet. And the connection is the heart. The heart. If you put any other thing in the place of God, you are coveting that thing. And you are worshiping it as an idol. It may not be something that some man fashioned out of wood and gold and this sort of thing. But it's an idol nonetheless. And it will destroy you. It will destroy you. You may not believe it until your deathbed, but when death comes, and it's coming for us all if the Lord tarries, it will be inescapable that that's the truth. You will know that you have nothing because you die with your idol. You see, the Lord does not wish that upon his people, but he would have his people fear him, trust him, have him as their God, have him as their portion, and therefore have everything. This is what Judah forgot in her sin, which is why she turned away from him. She turned away from the God who loved her and gave Himself for her. She turned away from the God who had been so patient with her for generations. She turned away from the God who had consistently been faithful to His covenant promises, holding those promises out to them, the promise of redemption, the promise of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with Him on condition of her faith. She turned away from Him, you see. forgetting that He's the one who formed all things, even Israel itself, to be the tribe of His inheritance. But she refused to return to Him and pursued other gods. She pursued idols instead. She gave herself over to empty idols that don't last. That brings us to the final section, verses 17 through 25, where we see the condemnation of idolaters. Look at verses 17 through 18. The text says, Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the, of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. So in a moment... In a moment, the Lord transports us all of a sudden. And remember, this sermon that 
Jeremiah is preaching is still nearly 40 years removed from the Babylonian exile. But in a moment, the Lord transports us to the time of the siege, to the time of the siege that's on its way at Jerusalem. Commentator Derek Kidner describes the transition saying, quote, suddenly there is a sheer drop from the pinnacles to the depths, from the thought of Israel as God's own treasure, in verse 16, to the pathetic sight of her as a refugee, in verse 17, leaving the ruins for the road, end quote. So the Lord envisions now the siege after it's had its full effect. Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. But notice this. It's not ultimately the Babylonians who sling the inhabitants out of the land. It's the Lord Himself. He says, He will now sling His people out of His land, bringing distress upon, him, upon them that they may feel it. This is His judgment against them for their idolatry, for their turning away from Him. And that same act of judgment is simultaneously His loving discipline for those who respond to it with the grace of repentance and His condemnation upon those who remain hardened in their sin. It's simultaneously both of those things. Look at verses 19 through 22. The text says, Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains, for the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. And therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. Once again, we hear the voice of Jeremiah as he offers up a lament to the Lord as he bears his soul before the Lord, lamenting before him as a gracious example from the Lord of what the grace of repentance during such a time ought to look like. Jeremiah does indeed feel, feel the distress of the Lord's judgment acutely, as verse 18 said. He speaks of himself in verse 19 as being hurt, being wounded. It's a, it's a spiritual hurt. It's a spiritual wound. But notice something, beloved. Notice how he responds to his pain. Notice how he responds to that wound. He says, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. Now, to be, to be clear, Jeremiah is no masochist. He doesn't invite the pain or resign himself to the pain for the pain's sake, but he nonetheless recognizes that his pain, what he is suffering, is from the hand of the Lord. And as such, he must bear it for his good. For his good. 
A worldly grief, remember we've seen this distinction between a worldly grief and a godly grief, a distinction the Apostle Paul makes in his letters to the Corinthians. A worldly grief that leads to death seeks to relieve such pain at all costs. It's only concerned about comfort. But a godly grief, a godly grief that leads to repentance and life receives the suffering associated with sin's judgment as a necessary corrective to be born by faith. Jeremiah describes his pain in terms of the loss of his house, his tent, and the loss of his children. This is, no, this is no theoretical analysis of sin and judgment in some ivory tower somewhere. This is very concrete in the life of God's prophet. It's very personal, you see. And notice, notice how he concludes in verse 21. This is also very instructive when it comes to the distinction between a worldly and a godly grief. Jeremiah doesn't shake his fist at the Lord, blaming the Lord for his pain. Neither does he shake his fist toward Babylon to blame them for his pain. Notice notice where he puts the blame. He puts the blame on the shepherds of Judah, that is the spiritual leaders, that is the prophets, the priests, the scribes, the kings, and the officials, calling them stupid. And why? Why? Because they, quote, do not inquire of the Lord. In other words, Jeremiah puts the blame exactly where it belongs, on those men who led Judah into idolatry, refusing to listen to the Lord generation after generation after generation. And in this, we see another mark of godly grief that leads to repentance in life, beloved. A worldly grief blames God or some other creature for the pain of its judgment. Shaking its fist in God's face or perhaps in the quote-unquote enemy's face in stubborn rebellion. A godly grief refuses to do that and instead places the blame squarely where it belongs which is on sin, on sin. In other words, a godly grief views sin as the enemy, not God or ultimately some other creature. Look at verses 23 through 25. The text says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not and on the peoples that not, call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. Jeremiah now offers a final prayer to the Lord, having just stood in the temple gate and delivered this great sermon in which the Lord has confronted hypocritical worshipers in their hypocrisy, warning them against the folly of an uncircumcised heart and the folly of idols. He now bears his soul once again before those same people through the Spirit searching once more. 
just as the Lord warned in verse 2 against learning, quote, the way of the nations. You remember that? All the way back at the beginning of this particular portion of His message, the Lord warned against learning the way of the nations. And so now Jeremiah confesses that he knows something about the way of man, the way of man, namely that it is not in himself. In other words, what Jeremiah is confessing is what the great Protestant reformer John Calvin once taught, saying this, quote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. And it sluggishly plods. Indeed, is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. End quote. And so we cannot, we cannot find our way in ourselves. We cannot direct our steps by ourselves because our problem is ourselves. Our problem is our sin. Our hearts remain totally depraved while we remain in the estate of sin and misery. And even after having been set free from that estate of sin and misery, from that depravity, we still continue to struggle with the presence of sin in our hearts, don't we, beloved? Sin remains ever with us so that the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we do, we don't want to do. We cannot, we cannot look within. You see, that's what Paul is showing us, much like Jeremiah That's what he's showing us in Romans 7, the end of the book or end of the chapter, when he says, I do the very thing I don't want to do, and the thing I want to do, I don't do. I find there's a principle, there's a law within me, always warring against the right thing, always warring against God, against the spirit that God put there. So I can't just look within and figure it out. And what does he do at the end of that looking within for a moment in order to figure it out. Thanks be to God. He looks outside Himself. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ who is my Savior, you see. We cannot cannot look within to find our way to God. If we do, if we try to do that, we will inevitably enter into idolatry. Because as Calvin said, our, our hearts are idol factories. This is, I think, what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says in Romans chapter 1 in verses 22 through 23, claiming to be wise in themselves, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is why, beloved, if we are to find our way to God, He must first come to us. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, humanity sought in its own wisdom and power to find its way into heavenly glory, to find its way to God. And God, though the tower was high, 
God came down and judged them for it. And then in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, God, God comes down to a single individual, to Abram, and He promises to make him into a great nation so that all the nations might be blessed through Him. God must first descend to us if we're to ascend to Him. This is what Jeremiah now recognizes, which is why he calls upon the Lord for correction. By God's grace, Jeremiah desires to have his own heart corrected by the Lord. But he says, O Lord, do it in justice, not in your anger. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what Jeremiah means is that his desire is to be corrected so that he himself is brought into accord with God's own righteousness. In other words, he, desire, he desires to be a follower of God who offers acceptable worship before God by grace rather than to be a castaway from God under his wrath and curse. Jeremiah describes or desires, I should say, that God would reserve His wrath for the idolatrous nations, for those He describes as having devoured and consumed Jacob and have laid waste His habitation. And so here, once again, He looks forward to the time of the Babylonian captivity, but He looks beyond it. He looks beyond it to the time when the Lord has promised to restore His people to the land and to bring His judgment down upon the Babylonians. Jeremiah and the rest of Judah will long for that time after spending so long in exile. It's not that Jeremiah takes any delight in the destruction of God's enemies for destruction's sake, but he knows that the salvation of Judah is tied to the destruction of Babylon. And so, beloved, in our text for this morning, we've seen the Lord confronting His people at His house with the folly of their idols. Idols and their worship are empty. Idols and their worship are transitory. In the end, all idolaters will be condemned under God's wrath and curse with their idols. And as Jeremiah acknowledges in his final prayer in verses 23 through 25, were we left to ourselves... We would all plunge headlong into that hellish end since the way of man is not in himself. If we are to ascend to God, he must first descend to us. This is one of the major themes of all redemptive history. We see it, as we've already noted, in the contrast between the Tower of Babel and the call of Abraham. We see it in the ram that the Lord provides on Mount Moriah as Abraham goes to offer up his his only son Isaac, the son of promise. We see it in Jacob's vision of the ladder in which the angels ascend and descend to the earth. We see it in God's descending upon Mount Sinai and in dwelling the tabernacle during the Exodus. We see it everywhere. The Lord God, by His grace, comes to humanity to change the heart, the hearts of His people, and to instruct His people in His ways. And we see it ultimately, ultimately in the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. As John teaches us in his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he says, He came to His own. Notice that. He came. He came down. He was sent down to His own. They didn't rise up to Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He must come to you if you are to go to Him. And He has come to you. Whether you have received Him or not, He has come to you in a very real sense. He has come to you in the sending of His Son so that if you believe in Him, if you receive Him as your Savior and your Lord, then your sins will be forgiven and you will be accepted in God's sight through the righteousness of Christ which is counted to you and you will be adopted as a child of God and you will be progressively sanctified by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He will fit you more and more for the glory to come on the last day. He will strip away those idols that remain in your heart. His way, His way is not in you or in any of us by nature. But He graciously comes to teach us His way. And not only to teach us His way, but to transform our hearts that we might receive that teaching. As we look unto Him and as we trust Him. And so I call upon you to trust Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for a time to study it together. We give You praise for the way You speak to us through it. We pray that You would indeed cure us Cure us of the sin of idolatry. Help us to turn away anytime we are tempted to make any creature into an idol. Help us to remember that you are the one true and living God. The one who is full, full of grace and truth. We thank you that you have shown your Saving love to us, you have lavished it upon us in the sending of your Son and Spirit for our salvation. We thank you that you come to us, that we might be cured of this disease called idolatry, that we might be set free to worship and adore the one true and living God, to have you as our portion. Continue to move us, we pray, in the coming week that we might not turn away from you, but that we would grow in our fellowship with you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.